Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello! How are you? I'm fine. I noticed we didn't uh, embrace or shake hands when you arrived today. Are you, are you worried about infection? Is that what's going on? Oh. No, I wasn't really. I had a bit of a cold, but I don't think it's anything more than that. I, I mean, I didn't take it personally. I've noticed a lot of people I've, 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 that oh, I've met over the yes. last week. Have you taken up the sort of elbow greeting? Uh, what were you, just sort of bump elbows? Yeah. No, I'd, I'd like to see a bit of bowing. I, I could cope with some bowing. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe it will lead to a sort of different way of greeting people because you get judged by your handshake yeah and then that makes me better i told you once that somebody shook hands with me and then said i can tell uh, tell you went to a comprehensive school from my that handshake is just awful i know but my point being that maybe uh, a benefit of of this uh, all worrying about contagion is going to be that maybe we lose the handshake would you be you'd be pleased to lose the handshake would you i would i would you really yeah, I don't, I don't enjoy it. Um, I, I tell you what, I do enjoy a hug. Do we? We don't hug very often, do we? No. Do you want a hug now? Not really. No. Okay. So. No. Um, but thanks for the offer. So, I think we'll get to an increasing trend of, which is really exciting me, of people emailing us from like far away places that they're listening to the podcast. But so you know how you go down a sort of internet rabbit hole on occasion. I went down the internet rabbit hole of our, where people listen to us yesterday. Because you can access that data. You can access that data. So not, not their actual address. I want to do a, a specific shout out to the people listening in Mongolia. Inner pa- or outer? Pa- I doesn't say. Papua New Guinea, Madagascar, Cuba and Kazakhstan. If you are listening in one of those five countries or indeed anywhere else, which isn't sort of necessarily directly on the beaten track... You know, please do let us know, don't you think? What would, would we like? I this? mean, I'm happy about the beaten track as well, but but if you're off it, if yeah. you're that far off it, yeah. do you want those people to identify themselves? Well, no, just say like, get, you know, tell us what circumstances you're listening in, and you know what you do, and and all that. I'm just quite. Don't you think it's quite exciting? Yeah, really exciting. I mean, it's like if we go through a maybe we go through a tour of those five countries. <laughs> I mean, we'd at least get a couple of people coming to our live shows. <laughs> Oh, I tell you what we should mention yeah. is that there will be another cheerful book club out in a yes. couple of days. Yes. Uh, if you haven't listened yet, give it a listen. Yes. If you do listen, make sure you subscribe. If you enjoy it, say something nice about it in a review and rate or it. Or if you don't, uh, say something nice. No, to keep it. it to you. Yeah, yeah say yeah. something nice or, yeah. or yeah. keep your trash talk to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, haters going to hate, but not in our review section, exactly. please. Um, 
and it's going to be with Emily Oster, um, who has written a book called Cribchy, which has done incredibly well. It's a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting. Which we definitely, both preschool. of us definitely need. Yeah. And we're doing it with a fantastic Sarah O'Connor from the Financial Times. So, yeah, that's out uh, this week. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review. What are we talk about on this week's episode? Uh, this week we're talking about devolution. We need a devolution revolution. You say you want a devolution. Well, you know, we all want to see the plan. It's the Beatles, Ed. I'm sorry. They were a band. Uh, were they? Uh, the Beatles. Uh, the UK is one of the most centralised countries in the world. Powers that are held by regional and local government in many countries in the world are hoarded by Whitehall. We're also one of the most regionally unequal countries. The UK is home both to the richest region in Europe, which is London, and six of the ten poorest regions in Europe. And the two things are generally seen as, as connected. The government is talking about levelling up our regions, but has t- so far... It's... The government is talking about levelling up. They're using that phrase. Yeah. Has anybody heard them use that? <laughs> using it all the time. But has... <laughs> all they talk about is levelling but, up. But has so far shown little interest in giving real power away. In the past few years, a number of new city regions have been established with elected mayors. But English devolution is still a bit of a mess. These regions have limited powers and still cover a minority of the English population. We're going to be talking to Marvin Rees, the elected mayor of Bristol, and a big advocate of devolution about what he could do with more powers. Sarah Longlands from IPPR North, that's Think Tank, about why they're calling for this to be a devolution parliament. And then Professor Sabine Kuhlman about what we can learn from one of the most decentralised countries in the world, Germany, about how to really give power away. This is a really big uh, issue. I think, I think I'm right in saying that we are um, the most centralised rich country in the whole of the world. Wow. Yeah. I would like to be a mayor. Although maybe one of the more ceremonial ones. I think. Just get to wear the chain and be driven around in a car with... Do you have little flags on the... Maybe, I could, be your, maybe I could be your consort. Yeah. I'd, I'd, mayors I'd, always have... Civic mayors always have a consort. I'd certainly bear you in mind well, during the recruitment process. Bear me in mind. Well, that's big of you, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful is, is actually from uh, the, the week before last, but we, we didn't get a chance to get to it which is the judicial ruling on Heathrow Airport on the third runway, which is very, very significant. And we had Tim Crosland on the podcast talking a few weeks ago about climate litigation. And, you know, he brought the case and, you know, he succeeded. And, you know, just so it's a victory for, for reasons to be cheerful. As, well, it's more of a victory well for reasons to be cheerful than you might think, actually. Do go on, Ed. Yeah, I think it's time Are you for... about to claim credit for this? Yeah, and this, you're going to have to bear with me here because it's a kind of complicated story. But but in a okay. nutshell, after 2015, when, as you may know, I lost the general election, I took up the cause of getting net zero enshrined in UK law. Much to the scepticism, I have to say, of not just some people in the government... Um, but even some of the NGOs were thinking it was kind of probably a bit early to make that happen. Um, uh, yeah, they helped me, but I think they were sort of not that optimistic. And in a way, they turned out to be right because the government didn't immediately do it. But I, I basically ended up talking to Amber Rudd, who's the Climate Change Secretary, George Osborne, Oliver Letwin about this. It came from a, a woman called Bryony Worthington, who's a member of the House of Lords. It was her idea. Uh, and also uh, somebody called Fahana Yamin, who we've had on the podcast. And we what i got the government to do was to make statements in parliament saying they would legislate for net zero and they basically said the climate change committee needs to look into it and it was a sort of partial victory but it was getting on the record anyway it then sort of took a few more years to happen to get net zero into law as you know it happened last year but what's really interesting is that i read the judgment and the two statements made by andrea ledsom and amber rudd 
were an incredibly significant part of the judgment because the judgment was on the basis that the government hadn't, when they'd agreed Heathrow, taken into account the net net zero that had been enshrined in Paris. And not only had they signed the Paris Agreement, but they'd made statements saying they were going to legislate for it. Well, so it's a slightly roundabout explanation, but I'd like to take a little bit of credit. Well, firstly, congratulations. Secondly, that was quite the nutshell. Well, it wasn't. It was a sort of walnut shell or coconut. A coconut. Thing. It was a coconut, coconut shell. Yeah, all right. Well, no, but congratulations. You must be well, feeling very proud. Try it's doing it again. Great victory. Thank you for pissing great, on my. Great thank victory. you for pissing on my chip. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is the Icelandic entry in this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And for more on that, we have our Iceland correspondent <laughs> Hatla Gunnarsdottir, who joins us in London. Uh, you've come from Reykjavik especially to talk about this, Hatla. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, I think Hatla is the reason to be cheerful, and the Eurovision is a sort of secondary thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what can you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, what can I tell you about them? I mean, uh, so so they tried also in 2017 to okay. get into Eurovision, uh, but they came second. Uh, and there was like a you know a part of the country was just furious that they lost. Oh, maybe maybe um, there's encouragement for me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Ed. <laughs> who, who is their demographic in Iceland? So I think I mean probably younger people, but they're now you know n- now they're now they're getting even more famous. So there are more and more people, and we, they're they're just, kind of they're, they're from like rural areas. Are we like um, to play a burst of it, or is there right issue? We're not for copyright no. reasons, but we'll I go out and listen. I strongly to it. encourage people. How to, would you to describe it, it, Jeff? In your sort of with your D- a, DJ Jeff hat they're on, they're sort of a bunch of very likable nerdy hipsters. Uh, like doing, you and me. Yeah. I don't think they're even hipsters. They're just uh-huh. nerdy. Oh, a bit like you and me. Yeah, doing, nerdy people doing really catchy electronic pop dance music. What are they called? Davi or Gagnamagne? And, and is that just their names? Yeah, so Davi is the name of the key singer, and I think he's he and his girlfriend or partner are kind of the um, key people behind this. They they basically they've been together forever, uh, and they have a little child. Uh, and they live together. They've lived in Berlin and other places, and they just make music. Travel to Cambodia to do music, and they so they think they work very closely together. They're so likable. And Hatla, just on matters that are slightly more important than Eurovision, tell us about what you're doing in the government because you've you you've been the you've been in charge of the work on domestic violence in the government. Yeah, like and more broadly on gender based and gen- sexual violence. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, you've got a big law about to be agreed policy about to be agreed yeah so we've been working on this prevention strategy for iceland so basically every every um committee that you pull together any like inquiry that you do it all ends up with like we need better prevention Uh, and then you do a little bit there and a little bit there but there's never been like a uh, like a fully formed idea of how we want to do this and what we want to do. So now we've pulled that plan together and it's... Uh, and key to it is work in schools? Yeah, key to it is to, to go through education uh, because our schools are where all our kids are. And is that about the sort of gender roles that people see for themselves or what? How, how's that going to Yeah, work? so it's kind of threefold. So you have to do like, I mean, there is there is this like overall prevention that works for everything, you know, you know that works with your, you know, self... Um, uh, with your self-image, your confidence, your boundaries, and yeah. all that, and that—that—that's you know that's related to drugs and alcohol yeah. misuse and violence and everything. Uh, but then you have to do some education just about this, like you know the stereotypes and uh, and gender stereotypes and the impact it has on how how women and men and girls and boys uh, interact with each other, and our role in kind of reinforcing them. Uh, and then the third thing is just to speak directly about violence. 
So just as we speak directly about the traffic, you know, right. we we say we say to kids like, yeah, you're supposed to, you know, be careful when you cross the street, even if 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 it's the green light for you, yeah. because there might be, you know, obnoxious mad drivers, and we have to learn to speak about violence against children uh, and against women in the same way that it can happen, and they have to know it because otherwise the the uh, um, the predators will have the defining power over what happened. Sounds really important. It really it? does. And if Iceland wins the Eurovision Song Contest, are we? Will you host us as well as the contest next year, and we can come and do uh, another oh, podcast? Eurovision yeah, Live. Yeah. Reasons to be Eurovision cheerful. Live. Yeah. Yeah. I always like the points. Mm. I'm not so into the music, but yeah, I like the, the points point. are very exciting. Yeah. Also and- in different languages and yeah. Yeah, I love it when they go around the different places and, and sometimes just the, the, the people, you know, they're obviously very famous in their own countries, but they build their part up a bit too much when they give the points. They see it as their big international break. Yeah. I mean, it might surprise you to hear that I was always interested in the geopolitics of the... <laughs> I was going to say, the geopolitics are an interesting well, part. Who gives, who gives yeah. different people, well, based you, on sort of who fought who in the Second World War and, yeah. you know, etc. Yeah. Well, some, some people are saying that Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland would do better to break away from the United Kingdom and put put in their own Eurovision entries. Interesting, uh, because sort of in recent years, for those very geopolitical reasons, we've we've not done so great, mm. and our songs haven't been but great now, either. But now, with the popular vote, uh, like diasporas also matter. So if you've got like uh, a big yes. diaspora, then you have you know because people can vote in the countries that they live in. So when I lived here in the UK, I yeah. would of course vote Iceland, which I wouldn't be able to do at home. Right, wow, that is really interesting. And how's Katrine, the Prime Minister? She's doing well. Yeah, she's doing well. Leading the government. With, and you've uh, just brought in this, um, we, we were talking about it earlier, you've brought in this um, parental leave, this is a sort of update. So when we were in Iceland, they you had parental leave of three months for the father, three months for the mother, three months for shared to, to be taken by either a partner. And now you've moved to four months for the father, four months for the mother, two months shared. And you're going to then move to a total of 12 months and you're debating how it gets shared out. Yeah, so it's going to happen next year. It's going to be a total of 12 months. I mean, months. it does show progress is happening. Yeah. yeah. More reasons to be Icelandic. Yeah, there you go. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Live from Bristol, we have Marvin Rees, who is the mayor uh, and has been since 2016. Hello, Marvin. Hey, how are you? I'm, I'm fine. Thanks for talking to us. And, and the first thing we wanted to clear up, and this speaks perhaps to the problem with devolution in this country, is, is what sort of mayor are you? Because there <laughs> seems to, there's, there's the, the ones with the chains, uh, there's the city mayors. Uh, where, where are you on the spectrum? I'm a city mayor, but I... I... Yeah, I'm a directly elected mayor where, with executive power. I don't have the bling, I just have the office. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And then, obviously, we also have a relationship with the metro mayors as well, who uh, chair the combined authorities. But I am Bristol's directly elected mayor. And what does that, what does that role involve? Ah, uh, what does it not involve? I, I mean, there's a, there's a direct role in terms of political leadership of, of within the city local authority, so we have responsibility for obviously balance, you know, passing a balanced budget and providing good quality services for the authority. Um, but you also, you know, we're accountable for getting real, real outcomes, real results, building homes for people, uh, convening the city around shared priorities such as tackling child hunger, ending period poverty, things that we can only get done by working together. 
just so our listeners understand, who is your metro mayor then? Where, where, which area do they cover? So my metro mayor is uh, Tim Bowles, uh, a conservative, and our combined authority is Bristol and the neighbouring authorities of South Gloucestershire and North Somerset. So there are and, and what powers very, does your metro mayor have compared to you? Well, there, there's clearly a leadership role on transport, um, housing and, and edu- education and skills, or particularly adult um, skills. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it can only work when we work together. So, so power's not, power in that sense is not a discrete entity for any component part of the combined authority. Um, so the idea, we went into a combined authority because the promise was we'd get more money and we'd get a listening ear at government to be able to get more stuff done. And, and you argue for greater devolution to local and regional government. What, what additional powers would you like to have and what would you do with them? The biggest challenge to our power at the, at the local level is around the predictability and consistency of good quality finance. Uh, so we have a whole group of services that we need to deliver, and they have not been adequately funded uh, by national government, as we as we know. Austerity has gone on a decade. Uh, local authorities have lost sixty pence in every pound that government used to give us. It's decimated us, and and it's and it's absolutely brutal. It's a, it's a disinvestment in the lives of of British people, um, and and certainly for me, a disinvestment in the lives of of Bristolians that we will pick up the tab for in terms of health. Um, social disintegration uh, as we go forward um, but actually what what we really need if we're going to build our city is consistent predictable finance at the moment working with government too often feels like playing bingo or going for a job interview where we we work up a vision and then and then in someone's excel sheet in whitehall they look at it and see if it matches the score sheet and then they say yes or no well that doesn't give us real sovereignty and it doesn't allow us to be predictable dependable partners um, in the city for our other public sector or for business um so more power over the over the line of finance we have for bristol would be would be incredibly well and, and marvin just on that point the, the the there's two aspects of this aren't there some of the money you get comes from central government uh and and that's just a decision of central government how much money they give you so it's not always locally and also there's big restrictions on what taxes you can levy locally oh yeah i mean yeah i mean we're we're offered yeah and we're, we're given a, a kind of a mafiosa choice if i don't want to be too dramatic about it yeah on our council tax you know you can you can raise the maximum amount of council tax um uh, if you want to <laughs> and we have to otherwise we can't fund our services um you know and you don't have to but if you don't you undermine your council tax base for future uh, revenue streams obviously on that tax and and you'll end up paying a long-term price fit and if there's other charges that you want to levy on people taxes i'm not saying they necessarily are but you can't do that without the agreement of central government no no i mean all this is a manifestation of the fact that we are among the most centralized countries in europe um oecd with power being being in the center um, and it's a, it's a problem. It's, it's like a it's like a two tier interpretation of British politics, where all the serious stuff happens up in the, in uh, Westminster and Whitehall, and the second class stuff happens out in the, the the town, cities, and rural areas. And I, but I think that model's being turned on its head. We're we're in a world at the moment where I think we're we're visibly seeing the very real limitations on the ability of national governments working alone to cope with the world's challenges the way they are, from migration to climate change, inequality, housing delivery, transport. 
Um, and actually what we urgently need is a rebalancing of sovereignty, uh, not just in this country, around the world, but, but much more to, to recognise the, 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 the role of, and the relevance of, of the directly elected city leadership. And, and as you do your job as mayor, and you've been doing it for, for nearly four years now, what, what's the other big sort of frustrations, the other big limitations on your power that you see? It's the machinery of it. It's that you get this sense that there are a group of, uh, you know, um, academically clever people gathering around a table in Westminster coming up with solutions to the country's problems, coming up with another funding pot for some initiative. I'll give you an example of how that worked. So we ran a, fant- a, a very successful programme to feed hungry children, particularly tackling holiday hunger um, in Bristol. We, we worked with local government business uh, to, to deliver meals. Then the government put out a pot of money and basically all the cities had to compete for it. We didn't win, so we got nothing. <laughs> all right? So what's that? The children yeah. in another city get fed, ours don't. You can't run a country like that. You know, this is about investing in the whole place. Now, if you'd have come, I don't want to, one is I didn't want to lose that money, but also I don't want to be in a situation where I'm trying to succeed uh, because I'm making other places lose. You know, it's this this idea of, it's like what we call in school a game of scrambles. A kid has one sweet left and doesn't know who to give it to, so just chucks it on the floor and everyone fights for it, you know? I would always lose the game of scrambles. What about you? (laughs) I wouldn't be great at that either. Well, you you enter it at the risk of broken fingers. That was our primary school. You're part of something called the Global Parliament of Mayors. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and why you think that local leadership can be part of the answer to global issues? And I know you mentioned before migration, but also uh, inequality and the climate crisis. So, so, so what is that and where would you like to see that type of cooperation and collaboration going? So I, I just the origins of it are actually uh, the the phrase was coined by um, a man called Dr Benjamin Barber who wrote a book and there's a YouTube uh, of it called When Mayors Rule the World TED Talk um, and he was actually saying with most of the world now living in cities we need to increasingly respect the role of city uh, leaders um, not just in the role they play in shaping what goes on inside their city boundaries but the important role they have in shaping the context in which they have to work what happens to people in bristol is not just a result of decisions made in city hall Um, obviously they're on the end of national policy global trends uh, and to be successful cities need the platform to be able to shape those um uh, those dynamics now the global parliament of mayors looks to build the connections between mayors to have that influence but internationally. So I was the co-chair of the GPM, but there were mayors from the United States, from, from, from Africa, from South America, um, Asia. They all came to Bristol for the annual conference um, a couple of, in 2018, actually. Um, and, and we have had some impact on that. So uh, a couple of years ago, I went to the UN just before the, the, the signing off of the Global Compact on Migration. Now, remarkably, I spoke at the UN. I was the first city leader to speak into those negotiations on what that global compact would look like. That, despite the fact that most migrants leave cities, go to cities and return to cities. So how are you going to write a global compact without talking to the leaders of cities? It's absolutely remarkable. So, you know, cities were a subject to be talked about, but they weren't a leadership to be engaged. The GPM looks to change that. But it's not the only place. Um, you look at C40, for example, you know, cities coming together around the issue of climate change saying, well, even if national governments are failing, we'll step up. The American mayors have done that in the face of Trump. 
I also sit on something called the Globe, uh, the Mayor's Migration Council with Mayor Garcetti from Los Angeles, Yvonne Sawyer from Freetown, which again, which is us mayors stepping up and saying, we want to shape the global conversation on migration uh, because we don't approach it like national governments where we, where we look at border controls and strict boundaries. Cities, by their nature, are multidimensional international organisations that share global populations. So we can bring a whole new dynamic to the conversation on who belongs where and, and where we need people moving. So how, how do we go about putting pressure on government to devolve powers to cities like yours then? Well, what do they say? You know, power's never voluntarily given up by the oppressor. I'm not saying my government is an oppressor, but, you know, it's the, you know I'll just use the phrase anyway. <laughs> um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's hard work convincing them to do it. But I think some of it would just become, will come through cities beginning to mobilise and, and assert themselves. And, and I don't mean assert in a confrontational way. I just mean not waiting for national government leadership, whether we're talking about trade, migration, climate change, um, health, um, inequality, housing delivery, that cities are actually just beginning to get stuff done um, themselves and saying to government, look, we've organised ourselves. Are you going to come and partner with us on this? And hopefully that begins to, to see some of that uh, change. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a, it's a utopia. I am a benign dictator. And so you claim. I, I am benign. I just want the prestige. I don't want much power. I'm very into decentralising... Devolution, yeah. De- decentralising power, devolution. Um, so if, if I was to appoint you um, Minister for Devolution or, or Minister Secretary for Mayors... Secretary, I mean, take, take your pick, Marvin. What is the first thing you would do at government level around this? Well, we need to negotiate the salary on that one because uh, local government <laughs> local government politicians don't get paid that well, and we had our pensions taken away. So once we get over the uh, the, the the salary, I, I think I would. I think any national leader, the prime minister, leader of the opposition, should anchor into their annual pulse of scheduling meetings with the leaders of the the major. Uh, cities, uh, local authorities. I, I mean, I, I'd be careful about this because I don't want to miss off towns. But there has to be some rhythm to actually engaging with the leaders of local authorities as a matter of course, not seeing them as second tier, not seeing them as a delivery arm of national government policy, but seeing them as democratically elected sources of power. Um, the, the former mayor of Cape Town said it, it should be seen as spheres of government, not tiers of government. Um, and, and, and I think getting that pulsing, getting that way of thinking would be incredibly helpful. Um, and then I would want to look at the, the, the financial arrangements. If you give me 15 years of predictable finance and partnership, then we'll give you a 15-year 15 15-year delivery plan uh, through which we build homes, you know, a world-class transport system that decarbonises our lifestyles, brings biodiversity and tackles inequality. But we just don't have that kind of relationship. Well, I, I think you get the job. I've got one very specific question, Marvin, and obviously you are responsible for what happens in Bristol. There was a very nice pancake stall outside the station, <laughs> uh, which I used to use. And I think it's sort of dis- it's very mysterious. It disappeared. It used to make extremely nice ham and cheese crepes. Can uh, you can you please sort of tell me what's happened to it? Um, I will try and find out. But if you can help <laughs> me, if you can get help me get the 200 plus million for the renovation of Temple Meads. I Definitely, will do my best to get that pancake. Oh, see, that that pancake store was brilliant. All right, I'm gonna have to find out what happened there. Like honestly, in the Jeff Oxy, we just we need the pancake. You saying he back. should run for re-election on a on a crepe and pancake platform? Very, very good. Yeah, yeah definitely. Shrove Tuesday every day. <laughs> <laughs> 
Marvin Reese, honestly, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. No, thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to speak now to Sarah Longlands, who is director of IPPR North. Uh, IPPR, uh, we hear from a lot on this podcast, the Institute for uh, Public Policy Research. Um, Sarah, hello. Tell us why you've got a specific northern think tank. Yes, um, IPPR North was uh, set up 16 years ago. Its purpose was to move the conversation about policy away from Westminster and into the regions to make sure that areas like the North had a a greater voice, a greater say in the way that policy is shaped and developed uh, at Westminster. Now, every government minister has been told to use the phrase level up, levelling up at every possible opportunity. Yeah. But what what is the sort of underlying problem of regional inequality in this country? And, and, and then maybe go on to tell us about how that links into the, has been so centralised. Yeah, so um, we've published a lot of the research over the years, which shows just how unequal the, the UK is. In fact, our research suggests that the UK's economy is one of the most unequal uh, in the developed world, um, particularly when you compare us to our neighbours in Europe. And um, that's for a number of reasons. Um, But primarily, we argue that that inequality stems from a centralised political and economic system. Um, The majority of decisions about people's lives in the north of England is made at Westminster, Uh, And that means that the policy discussions are are very much centred and influenced by by the the, the voices at Westminster. And we feel that there's a a lot missing from the conversation. And and that means that when policy actually is actually materialises, it means less funding for things like transport. Some our research shows that twice as much money is spent on transport in areas like London um, when you compare it uh, to the north of England. And if you look at somewhere in a little bit more detail like Yorkshire, then it's half that amount again. We've also shown that if you look at uh, job creation in the last 10 years or so, 48% of those jobs have been in London and the southeast. Um, and that's got real, con- real kind of uh, knock-on impacts for uh, people in the rest of the country, um, which means that they either have to, to move uh, or to um, have, have a lower income, if you like, uh, in, in the north of England. And does England specifically lag behind the devolved nations? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting point because the devolved nations, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, um, got a, a devolution settlement, um, you know, decades ago. Uh, and uh, there's been a sort of England-shaped hole in the, the devolution debate ever since. Uh, and I think Brexit has really helped to, to bring that to, bring that to the fore. Um, and I think what we've what we've seen over the last, you know, sort of four or five years has been this sort of uh, attempt at devolution to, to England. Um, but it's been very patchy and very piecemeal. Um, it's really kind of more delegation or, or decentralisation than, than what we would argue is, is true, true, true devolution. Um, and it's uh, all the deals are different. And the decisions for how that devolution actually pans out still rests with Westminster so that the sort of power dynamic is very much in favour of Westminster. And, uh, and it's been very sort of driven by in particular individuals along the way, like George Osborne had a particular vision for it and he sort of drove it in a particular, in a particular way. At the minute, we've got something, but it, there's a, we feel there's a, there could be something so much better really to, to come out in the longer term. 
And, and what is your vision for a better version of devolution then? It starts with um, having a, a, a system of devolution which isn't so piecemeal and so variable from place to place. So the first thing would be a, a clear framework for devolution, a clear set of rules and uh, a sort of greater transparency about the whole process. Um, the second thing would uh, be about uh, really getting into the 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 some of the most important powers of, of devolved government. So thinking about um, fiscal devolution, for example, and starting to explore how you might actually transfer some of the real levers of power. Which levers specifically would central government have to take their hands off? Well, I mean, at the minute, um, the devolution, the devolution deals that we've seen have um, have have explored sort of devolution of uh, transport powers uh, to some extent, uh, and they've explored sort of things like adult care and health and social care, um, adult skills. Um, we think there's an opportunity to to look at um, transferring powers in terms of trade. An investment at the minute that's really centralised. So I think there's a, a chance, a real chance to do that, um, uh, and also looking at um, housing um, and, and thinking about how some of that might be devolved out to uh, to, to a lower level. In terms of fiscal devolution, um, it's uh, much more of a challenge, I think. But if you look at what's happened in in some of the devolved nations, there are sort of uh, sort of small steps have been taken in there to devolve uh, certain things. Um, to, to some of the some of the to Scotland, Northern Ireland, or Wales, um, but I think that's uh, you know we've got to to kind of start to look at that. You know, for example, we know that very little money is raised locally um, in in the in the UK, and that means that uh, there's a there's sort of less incentive, if you like, um, to to actually save money or to, to use resources efficiently. Whereas if you were having to raise money locally uh, over, say, a, um, a regional scale. Um, then that might provide a, a greater incentive to to use that money differently. Is one way to look at this, Sarah, that if I'm a if I'm a resident in a local area and I think about the things I might be concerned about uh, outside London, the quality of the bus services, uh, whether there's enough council housing, just to give two examples, the problem is that the local people I'm electing don't really have much power over those things. So so there's just a massive mits- mismatch, isn't there, between sort of where residents might think accountability should lie. Well, well, I mean, there's actually just a massive gap in terms of who is accountable for those things. I mean, is part of this about just, it's like a transformation of mindset, isn't it? So that, you know, not will give a little bit of power crumbs off the table to local elected people to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But but the presumption should be that local Officials, if, if it's a thing that is kind of appropriate to their area, can make the decisions unless there's a reason for them not to. Yeah, I think I think you're you're absolutely right because I think ultimately, if you're able to make those decisions, uh, you know, in your in your in a on a more local basis, then potentially change can happen faster, um, which is all to the good rather than having to wait for the kind of Westminster machine to kind of crank up and slowly kind of pump out um, uh, an answer, if you like. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that I think it's also about making politics meaningful. Um, the fact that, you know, the decisions about buses or schools or education can often seem quite remote for people on the ground means that politics becomes remote itself. Um, and uh, people can't see a way of influencing or connecting with it. So I think devolution 
um, does offer us a way to to rethink how we make decisions and, and try to bring that change a bit closer to people. And I think there is something about mindset. For me, devolution should be an opportunity to devolve mindset, to allow local leaders to sort of almost diverge, if you like, from a, a, the sort of national narrative and, uh, and and choose different courses of action, which perhaps are more tailored to the particular needs and challenges of their communities. Now, that we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which, believe it or not, is Jeff as the benign dictator. Um, but, but as I was saying earlier, I'm very willing to devolve power. I just want prestige. So if he were to make you the Secretary of State, I guess for well, – would it be local government, the Constitution? Uh, I'd, I'd make you the de- devolution czar. Devolution czar. Oh, yeah, I like that. What's the sort of first thing you would you would do or – or, or, or what's the sort of you know? First, give us the first sense of the first hundred days. The first thing I would do is uh, invite all of the devolved authorities that have been set up um, to to Westminster to talk about how we can, what powers they need to to really thrive, and um, what we can do to kind of unlock some of those powers. So, kind of get their input first. Uh, and then I would argue that what we need is to uh, restructure England into um, four or five regions <laughs> and create a kind of more federal structure. And uh, and then we um, have what you might call super combined authorities in each of those regions. And um, they have uh, um, autonomy to make decisions over economic policy, uh, including trade and investment and um, uh, including some sort of transport and education and skills. And then we... Um, get a chunk of civil servants who are currently in Westminster, and we, we move them out there to help set up um, the authorities. Jeff, we'll, we'll move Jeff out. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely move Jeff out as a big symbol, big piece of symbolism, I think. Yeah, I yeah, think so. A... We could put him in somewhere like Huddersfield, which is kind of in the I middle. was thinking more sort of a nice bit of Cornwall. And do you think central government, and obviously Jeff is included in this, do you think central government would ever... Kind of voluntarily give this power away. I mean, how, how and how do we put pressure on them to do so? Um, I, I, you know, I mean, whoever gives power away, I guess. Uh, I think Brexit is an interesting part of this because I think it um, it really brings home the that you know, Brexit has been very much an English uh, debate, and I think part of it is because people feel so kind of disconnected from the political system. So I think Brexit is an interesting argument in favour of giving people a sense that they have a greater say over the decisions that are made about their lives. But I think there's something about work, the regions working together in solidarity. So, you know, we, we published our report a few weeks ago and we had a lot of um, warmth from other regions like Cornwall, like West Midlands, uh, even London as well. We had support from them. And I think there's a real sense that if the regions can work together to say, you know, we 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 know that um, we can we can do better than than a sort of centralized system. Just give us the chance to um, to show that, that that we can, and um, I think that might be you know that might be a way of doing it to kind of create that solidarity and then together putting the pressure on Westminster to to make a change. And just one other question: um, We've talked on this podcast before about sortition citizens' assemblies. Has these this this set of issues ever been? And I know there was a constitutional convention in Scotland, admittedly of the parties, the non-conservative parties, which got to devolution at the at the beginning. Has this ever been put to a citizens' assembly, um, or a, a sort of proper citizens' assembly in terms of it, you know, deliberative assembly, randomly selected and so on? Um, this issue of 
of kind of what powers, you know, local authorities, um, uh, regions, sub-regions should have? Well, not that I'm aware of, but it's something that we would really like to do. And I guess in my first 100 days, as you know, devolutions are, that would definitely be something I would love to do, to actually set up a proper citizens' assembly and have a proper conversation with, with people about, you know, would this, how would devolution work for them and, and, and how, would they, how would they feel uh, more uh, in control of some of the decisions about, that are made about their lives? Because, de- you know, like devolution is put forward this kind of, you know, cutting edge uh, part of our de- democratic system. But the, the, the depressing thing about devolution at the minute is that it looks very similar to Westminster. All of the mayors are men, white men, and um, they tend to operate under with, with not a huge amount of scrutiny, it has to be said at the current time. So, but devolution could, if done properly, could be a chance to to really start to bring in much more innovative ways of involving people beyond just the ballot box every four or five years, as well as just encouraging you know civil civic action and and uh, you know kind of more civic conversations about the future of place. Okay, Sarah Longlands, I think you've got the job. Yeah, you go away and print some business cards <laughs> up, and uh, we'll get we've cracking. got the deal. Yeah, Sarah Longlands, director of IPPR North. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. It's been really fun. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So to hear about how we could do it so much better, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sabine Kuhlman, who is Professor of Political Science, Administration and Organisation at the University of Potsdam. Thanks so much for joining us, Sabine. Yeah, happy to join you. (laughs) Um, So Germany is one of the more decentralised countries in Europe. Maybe just for our listeners, you can start by giving us a sort of basic overview of how it works in Germany, the different levels of government and the powers that they have. Yes, of course. Um, Germany, as you said, is one of the most decentralized countries. So what is typical for our country uh, is that we do not only have a kind of horizontal power sharing, but also a kind of vertical power sharing, which means uh, the federation is on the top of it, uh, the national level, so to speak. Uh, then we have uh, the lender, the so-called lender, which are uh, 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 states, uh, have a state quality with their own competencies. So this means not only administrative functions, but they have their own legislations, uh, their own parliaments, uh, and uh, their own judiciaries, um, and of course, administrations. So we have this intermediate level. And then on, on the bottom level, we have a, a quite... Uh, uh, strong and powerful local government, uh, which enjoys a constitutional guarantee in Germany. So there is a constitutional article saying uh, that uh, the uh, uh, local self-government uh, on the municipal and county level has to be guaranteed. And if it's, this principle is violated, then uh, the local government can go to the courts, to the administrative court, uh, and to, to the constitutional court. So that is substantial um, powers that the lender have, yes? 
Um, the the lender and the municipalities and the, the local government. So the the lender, this is a a quality of a state, as said before. So yeah. they have their they have their own state quality, and they are also represented in the federal legislation with with the second chamber. So we have the second chamber, which is the Bundesrat. I think we cannot really translate it uh, as as a federal council because well, it's like the House of Lords, I suppose. Yeah, but but it's a regional a lender yes. uh, chamber, so yes. it's not uh, so well, it's I a mean, second it, chamber, but a completely differently uh, uh, com- composed than uh, than the, the the House of Lords. And Sabine, how much does German history shape this decentralized system of government? To uh, a very large extent. So the historical background is very important to understand the functioning and also the the construction of of, of the German system. Uh, so it dates back to uh, the 19th century. So in 1815, there still have been uh, almost 40 fairly independent states in Germany. So it always used to be a quite decentralized system. And then there were some um, efforts to more to have a more recent to more to have a more centralized system uh, uh, in the late uh, 19th century with the, the uh, foundation of the German, the so-called German Empire. But in all these steps, uh, there has always been a, a quite considerable degree of autonomy uh, at the subnational level, and therefore the German history is important. But also uh, the period after Second World War, when uh, the uh, occupation forces, the U.S., France, and the U.K., have opted for a quite decentralized uh, democratic uh, reconstruction of, of the system. And so they didn't opt for a centralized uh, system, which was characteristic for the Nazi, the Nazi uh, regime. So they also wanted to have a, a vertical power sharing in order not to give too much power to to the the central level. And g- give us some examples, Sabine, of what powers would sit at the lender or municipal level that might, in the UK context, be centralized. All issues concerning schools culture, education, police, not the border police uh, and not customs, but the uh, uh, common police is all legislation is based on the lender level. And what is also very important for Germany is that uh, most federal laws and also most EU legislation is executed and administered at the lender and local level. So there are not so many uh, authorities and agencies of um, of the Federation um, being responsible for administration and execution. So that's also important. Um, well, all issues, this is important also for the UK, all issues concerning local governments are uh, um, ruled out at the lender level. So the Federation in Germany can uh, not intervene into local government issues. And I know this is an issue in the UK because there's much intervention from the central state level uh, uh, at the local level to the local authorities. So this is not the case in Germany. No intervention of the federation, the federal level, uh, to the local authorities. 
And and what do you think the benefits are of these decisions being taken at a local level? Uh, on the one hand, um, local autonomy uh, is important uh, to adapt solutions to the local territory and to the citizens. Uh, so local governments can act m- more flexible and uh, they, they can uh, be more responsive towards local problems. So I think from the, that perspective, local autonomy is, is a quite important set of, of the German uh, system. We have seen this, uh, just to give you an example, with the refugee crisis, the so-called refugee crisis in Germany, where, where a mil- million of, of refugees um, entered Germany. And so the most responsive and uh, uh, the most performing level in public administration was the local level. It was not the federation. Uh, there was much uh, failure of, of federal level uh, institutions and agencies, but the local level, they were, they were quite re- reactive and quite uh, um, uh, strong and powerful in, in uh, dealing with these problems. And, and what would you say to somebody, and I'm just being devil's advocate here, who said, well, look, this is all very well, but from what Sabine says, if you care about education you're going to end up with what we in Britain call a postcode lottery. So education will be different if you live in London or if you live in Yorkshire, um, and you might get different educational standards, different educational spending, um, or policing might be different. You know, that, that, that the ability to have fairness across the country is put into question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, you always have to look at the at the function. So this was all would also be my advice that uh, you cannot decentralize everything uh, and uh, to uh, any extent. So you have to 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 look at the functions very carefully. So which functions which function is um, uh, appropriate for being decentralized to which level? and to be administered by whom. And what about revenue raising? Because one of the things that we heard from Marvin Rees in Bristol is the real problems with revenue raising and his ability to raise revenue, his ability to know how much money he's going to have to spend as the mayor of Bristol. Is that better handled, more locally handled in Germany? I, I think we have to make a distinction between the local level and um the federal and lender level. Regarding the local level, we have a quite, uh, I would say, significant degree of uh, fiscal discretion with the local governments uh, having about 30% of their revenues uh, based on locally levied taxes. And I think this is important um, to have some some kind of, of, of local freedom to act, to really uh, enact uh, local self-government. And this is highly appreciated in Germany. Uh, and there are some mechanisms of equ- um, which we call fiscal equalization schemes, where we can, uh, um, where, you, where we take care uh, of not having too m- many differences between uh, the, the different municipalities and local government. So there are equalization schemes. Well, look, you've set out the position on Germany really clearly. Sabine Kuhlman, thanks so much for joining us. So what did you think? I was surprised uh, when when we started looking at this as a subject, at how different and unique the UK is amongst uh, similar countries and having such a centralised government. I'm always, you know, when we look into stuff on the podcast, I'm always surprised that we've got neighbours who do things 
you know, often so much better, and yet these issues aren't it's really like, on the radar. I mean, well, I was going to say it's not yeah. even talked. It's not even sort of talked about. And I think you sort of st- stumbled across that when we were talking to Sarah about maybe the idea of citizens' assemblies and, and yeah. sortition being a way to engage people in this as a subject. I, mean, I think the other thing that's so interesting about it is, you know, to to, to a sort of small extent, the government since twenty ten has done some things to try and devolve power, but. What is sort of remarkable about it is a very British way of devolving power, which is you can have sort of de- you can have the devolution you want as long as it's the one we want. You know, it, so for example, uh, there's quite a big demand in Yorkshire to have a Yorkshire mayor, not just a South Yorkshire mayor, which is what we've sort of ended up with. But they're sort of basically ignoring it because they think there's not a sort of political advantage for them. Right, that's a suspicion, and I think it. You know, it feels to me like you've got to have a comprehensive settlement, not a sort of bits and pieces thing, which is just because somebody you do a deal with a metro mayor and you quite like them, and you know, which just feels like a very odd way of of, of sort of making arrangements. There's a massive question about expenditure and and how how local authorities raise money, and then there's the issue of just the things that really matter to people over which local authorities have no control. So I, I sort of feel like it's a high time we we had this debate, but had it in a in a kind of comprehensive way about, you know, how we're going to change things. And, and also, I don't think you can ignore the link between the way we are governed and where prosperity lies. You know, the fact that it's London is, is so much more prosperous, it's the most prosperous region in, in Europe, and we have six of the ten poorest regions in Europe. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. Well, and it's good. I'm going to do a bit of listener feedback. Um, this email comes from Rihanna, age 10. Hello, primary school in Worcestershire. Hello, Rihanna. She says this, my school recently stopped afternoon break times because that's what every other school is doing. This led me to discover well-known poet and author Michael Rosen, who is part of a campaign to stop the erosion of break times in schools. He said, play is a fundamental human right, not an extra. My dad said I could write to you and then you might talk about it on one of your podcast episodes. I have started a petition at school to get people's voices heard, to try and get break times back. And if you do a podcast about this campaign, you might help children in other schools keep their break times. Well, I'm certainly for all, all for bringing back break time. Yeah, and Eddie Burbage, who is the father of Rihanna, says that until his daughter raised this issue, he wasn't aware of this. The law states that every child has the right to play, but adults are often unaware of how important play really is. Thank you so much for Rihanna, and we'll definitely think about doing it on a future episode. I'm, I'm up for taking to the streets or doing a sit-in. Definitely. Uh, something, else that, something else that we need to come back to is when we were talking about the four-day week a little while ago, there was this suggestion that you should try and work four days in August. Um, but the, the, the name of it, I forget what it was, but it wasn't great. So we asked you for your suggestions uh, for, for what it should be called. And there's been a, a front a runner, torrent. Uh, there's been a torrent, a front runner, a clear front runner has emerged. Yeah. And that front runner is Forgust. I love Forgust. Who uh, suggested Forgust? Number Forgust? of people Alice uh, Lighttowers, Laura Titchener, Harry Tyler, Angela Cool, amongst others. It's a wisdom of crowds. Exactly. We crowdsourced it. Definitely. Forgust. Oh, also, hello to you if you are coming to our hello. first live show of the year, which is happening this week at King's Place in London. We're very excited about it. The sellout has resold out, I gather. Yeah, because they released more tickets than ever. And then they sold out. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't know what that means if they found some chairs in a storage cupboard or something. But yeah, we we we've resold. Maybe out. it's a way to sort of tickle people's fancies mm. to sort of release some more tickets. It's going to be a great night. I'd like to thank our guests: Marvin Reese, Sarah Longlands, Sabine Coolman. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pearce and Joe Kenyon. Our Iceland correspondent is Hatla Gunners Dottir. Uh, our voiceover, our announcer is Gail Lofthouse. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the idents and the artwork was designed by Emily Power. Oh, sorry. That was a bit last year, wasn't it? Uh, Henry Cole. Do you think we need some more national correspondents? I think international correspondents. I think you've given us an idea. Yeah, yeah. It feels quite sort of last week tonight, sort of the day to day, doesn't it? Very much so. I'm now joined by our international correspondent from Madagascar. Okay, well, we'll, we'll accept in, in, applications. Yeah, definitely. To be uh, international correspondents. And I'm very excited at the thought and that. And people could bring us cheerful things from Madagascar or wherever. Yeah, I think this is a great idea. And I'm very excited at the prospects of Iceland winning the Eurovision so that we'd be able to go back to Iceland and do another episode. Definitely. Right, and here for one time only, we're going to do the the outro that everybody loves so much and no, <laughs> nobody ever comments on in Icelandic. Þetta er Jeff Lloyd. Þetta er Ed Miliband. Or Þetta Vora. I'm not going to attempt this. Here's Hattler. Þetta Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 